Welcome to Because the Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles, 24-8. I'm Erica. And I'm Allison. And before we start, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or stream us on Spotify. And if you're enjoying Because the Beatles, feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting videos, photos, and more from this episode and beyond. You can also email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. That's right. And uh, a happy belated Ringo the Fourth to everyone. Oh, my God. My Ringo the Fourth is still going on because where I am, the fireworks never end, y'all. Dude, like yesterday, so we're recording this a day after Ringo the Fourth, and uh, there were like noises of fireworks, like booms all night in LA, but I didn't see a single firework. Seriously? Yeah, so weird. It was such a bad payoff. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I'm in suburbia right now, and the streets where I am, it was like the blitz. Oh my gosh. Like every driveway, there were people who obviously driven down to like Philadelphia or something where it's illegal to buy it and bought like thousands of dollars of fireworks. Like <laughs> on behalf of all the dogs in the world, I'm sorry that happened. <laughs> yeah. It was yeah. maddening. I'm sure they are having a really, uh, a, a really stressful day even today. <laughs> oh my God. Thank yeah. You so much. I think in Ohio, it's, you're, it's illegal to buy fireworks, but not legal to set them off if you don't have a, like a permit. And then in Pennsylvania, you c- it's like the opposite. Like you can't buy them, but you can set them off. So if you drive up the Ohio PA border, on the Ohio side, there's all these fireworks shops just like right over the line. It's real paradise if you want to go buy fireworks. A note for <laughs> next year. Yes. Yeah. Can't wait till next fourth. This won't come soon enough. But what is coming soon before the next fourth is... Yay, Ringo's birthday. Yeah, yeah, Ringo's birthday. Uh, Before we get into that, we wanted to remind y'all, since it's been a hot sec since we've uh, talked about this, but our Beatles book club selection, our next one upcoming, is Jenny Boyd's new book. Very excited. Jenny, of course, is the sister of Patty Boyd, married to George, and the Boyd sisters were pretty much iconic models for Mm -hmm. lots of the famous designers in the 60s and they both had crazy lives yeah and they were both in region cash with the beatles yeah and donovan you know jennifer juniper which is oh my god the name of the book yeah donovan wrote that about jenny in region cash so jenny's gonna come on and talk to us about it so date tba but if you want to get this book it's available on amazon or wherever books are sold it's a really interesting book and we hope you want to read it along with us and uh you know we'll be posting dates of when that's going to take place and you know if you want to ask jenny a question feel free to tweet at us or message us or whatever and we'll make a note of it for uh, when we chat with jenny absolutely so more to come on that but there is one other update we wanted to make and that is about abbey road on the river as many of our listeners know we were acting as the official podcast for the abbey road on the river festival that was first supposed to be over memorial day this year in may and has been tentatively pushed to October to actually the weekend of John Lennon's birthday. But given the state of the world right now, we have decided, coming from big cities as we do, that we're not 100% sure about the safety at this time. Yeah, that's right. And both of our cities and states are doing a really shitty job of flattening the curve. I can speak for LA. We're not doing well with that. Um, so, you know, Erica and I just don't feel comfortable going to, you know, a place where there'll be a lot of people who knows what we might, you know, be bringing with us. And, um, so yeah, we've decided that, you know, we're going to sit this one out very sadly. Um, Abbey Road and the River is kind of up in the air. Um, 
like Erica said, they've, you know, rescheduled it for the weekend of John's birthday, but they will make a final decision on uh, August 15th. So check their socials and, and uh, stay tuned for that update. Yeah, but in the meantime, we'd encourage you to follow them. Not only is it an amazing festival, but they really espouse progressive values. They're really a festival that I think both musically and personally, Allison and I really align with. So they're just a great group of people and they're a great group of people to follow. We hope that after we find out what's going on, that we will have some folks from Everyone in the River come on the show to talk about the festival and talk about the history of tribute bands in this country and elsewhere. And, you know, you'll get to know them a little bit better. Yeah, I've known Gary Jacobs since I was, God, ew, ew, the first festival was almost 20 years ago. I'm going to, excuse me, while I barf because I'm like hella old. Uh, But I've known him since that first year and we've gotten to know some of the people in the organization, they're so lovely and, and wonderful. And it's such a fun time. So, you know, wishing them all the best, but definitely 2021 is going to be awesome. And agreed with Erica, follow them on socials. It's so refreshing to see some of their posts. Absolutely. They care about musicians' rights. They care about Black Lives Matter. They care about the social injustice in the world. It's just nice to see. Yeah. It's very refreshing to see, especially like a Beatles organization, take a stand. And some of their posts, we even talked about how, you know, the Beatles were impacted by like Dylan and, you know, a lot of the Joan Baez and those, you know, artists in the 60s who were making political statements. And the Beatles also did, you know, maybe in more subtle ways. But, you know, it's true. And Mm -hmm. um, it's really important that we pay attention to what's going on in the world and it's nice that they are publicly saying that. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people say there's no place for a, a music festival to be doing that. But I think that there is every place for people to use their voices to speak out against injustice. Amen. Well said. Well, today we're not speaking about injustice per se. We're speaking about Ringo. We're speaking <laughs> about Ringo. That's a great segue from me, by the way. <laughs> uh, my favorite Beatle, Ringo. So on the day that this episode drops, July 7th, Ringo turns 80 years old. That's Holy fucked shit. up. I know. <laughs> That's fucked up. <laughs> I can't believe the Beatles are turning 80. Like, Ringo's the first one. John will be later this year. I know. Paul turns 78 this year. <sighs> yeah, which I can't believe. Um, sidebar, those pictures of him from, what, the Hamptons where he and Nancy are shopping. Um, can uh-huh. he just never dye his hair again? Like I love Mecca. Like, <sighs> anyway. I'm loving it. But this is about Ringo, right? I yes, guess? this is about Ringo, not Paul. We can actually yeah. do this. We can do an we entire do- episode. It's not about Paul. We can do yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> I think our listeners would love to challenge us to that. Um, <laughs> no, I wouldn't put money on it, but let's give it a shot. Yeah, right. If we can just make it without talking about Paul or Brian, that would be good. Or Brian, especially. Brian. Yeah, Brian. Um, yeah, I can't even go into that because then I will go into it. Anyway, so we're talking about Ringo, and of course, like for anybody who's listened to the podcast up till now, you might know I have very mixed feelings about Ringo. So here's the thing. I love Ringo. I love Beatle Ringo. I love Ringo up till, what, like five, seven years ago, whatever, when he made that YouTube video, the famous nothing, I'm warning you with peace and love video where he's basically like don't send me any more fan mail i don't care that you support me my music whatever like and his whole what's my name and it just all seems very like you know self-aggrandizing to me to me please don't at me it's 
just my personal opinion. I still love Ringo's, some of Ringo's fucking music, you know, it's just, I can't abide that. I can't abide that kind of like hubris, especially when, you know, Ringo and the Beatles was not like that. He was like Switzerland and the Beatles. I know. But today for his birthday, today we thought we'd pay a little tribute to Ringo's early life growing up in Liverpool through his teens and right up until the point he joined the Beatles. So we're going to talk about how awesome Ringo was, the challenges he has as a child, and the things that made him what the Beatles really wanted and what ultimately made the Beatles the foursome they became. That's right. You know, you could say, I could say whatever about Ringo, but he really was the only drummer for the Beatles. And a lot of that had to do with, you know, how he grew up and the circumstances he faced. Ringo, of course, like the other three Beatles, grew up in Liverpool, but where John, John had a very luxe sort of childhood compared to the other three. He grew up with his Aunt Mimi, but they had a very nice house and all that. Paul and George in different times lived in governmental housing, but they also really had normal-ish uh, upbringings and pretty stable homes. But Ringo grew up in a really depressing, impoverished area of Liverpool called Dingle. He would tell stories later that there were terrible gangs in Dingle. There was one called the Peanut Gang, apparently, that ran around just like stabbing people, as you do, <laughs> as one does. Uh, and uh, Peanut Gang sounds so cute, like like Snoopy. I know, the Peanut Gang, like they couldn't think of like a tougher name. But the people who lived there, they lived largely in tenements. There were some houses that were known as two up, two down, meaning two rooms downstairs, two rooms upstairs. People were really living, you know, hand to mouth and kind of just trying to survive. This was right on the cusp of World War II when Ringo was born. And he always said both of the sides of his family, his mom's and his dad's, they were both very, very poor. His mother had 13 siblings, which, holy shit, <laughs> that's crazy. Oh my God. I know. And uh, so anyway, so Ringo's mother, Elsie, she met Ringo's father, Richard, Richie, as he would be called, and Ringo would be called as well. In 1936, they married, but they met in a bakery in Liverpool where they worked together. After they got married, they moved to the Dingle with uh, Richard's parents, and Ringo would call his dad's mother, Grandma Starkey. So they moved to the Grandma Starkey. And uh, Ringo's parents, though, shortly, right before Ringo was born, they moved out into a proper house at 9 Madron Street. Still a very famous place, still standing to visit it. And then Ringo was born da, 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 on July 7th, 1940. He was a week late. Not great timing there for a drummer. Just going to point that out. Ah. Ah. <laughs> mm. And he weighed 10 pounds. Big baby. Yikes. Ouch. Yeah. So Ringo's mother, Elsie, had this famous quote that she would say all the time, that Ringo came into the world with his eyes open, and he looked around as if he, quote-unquote, been here before, already very world-wise. Ringo is obviously named after his father. It's a working-class tradition to name your son after the father. But Richard, the elder, left when Ringo was three. Um, and Ringo would only see him a few times in his life. It was kind of like John and his father. Much like Freddie Lennon, he was a real classy guy. Super duper classy, all class. And I was reading somewhere that Ringo said he'd only seen him about three times, I think. But he may have seen him actually more because Richard Sr. was actually hanging out in Liverpool a lot. He did eventually move away, but he 
might have been over at Grandma Starkey's more frequently than Ringo remembers, which is also kind of shitty. Like he didn't really make, you know, an impression on his son enough to actually like, I don't know, parent. <laughs> Call me crazy. <laughs> Gross. Well, luckily Ringo wouldn't want for a father figure, but we'll get to that in a minute. So anyway, after Elsie and Richard divorce, Elsie took baby Ringo and they moved around the corner. The house in Madron Street was not a two-up, two-down. It was a three-down, three-down, three-up. So it was bigger. It was more expensive. They couldn't really afford it, so they moved around the corner to 10 Admiral Grove, which is Ringo's famous childhood address. And Ringo actually says his first memories ever are of the move. So he remembers sitting on the back of the moving truck as it moved all their stuff just around the corner to the new place. At this point, too, Elsie was kind of hard up for money. You know, she got a small stipend from Ringo's father every month, but it wasn't enough. So... She took a job as a barmaid, which she had done before she met Richard. And uh, she most famously worked at the Empress Pub, which, you know, Ringo fans will know. It's on the cover of Sentimental Journey. And it's right on the end of Admiral Grove in the Dingle. And that's still there, too. You can go and have a pint where Elsie worked, take pictures, all of that good stuff. So when Ringo was six, um, a really significant event in his life happened. He got sick with appendicitis and his appendix burst, which is disgusting. And it caused him to contract peritonitis, which is basically just a big old infection. Bad news bears. It's like gangrene inside of you, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's what you don't want. That's why, guys, you know, if you're getting a little pang of pain in your abdomen, PSA, go to the doctor. Trust me. I had a friend with who this happened to. It's not good. Anyway, I'll step off my soapbox, talk about Ringo. Uh, but so he had to have two operations because of this. If you can imagine a six-year-old dealing with this. Um, and he said he went into a coma for 10 weeks, which is insane. Oh my God. Um, and then he had to stay in the hospital for a little over a year this time. Jesus. Yeah. And the weirdest thing I found was this hospital he was at, they wouldn't let their parent, the parents visit the children because they thought it was too stressful for the sick kids. Um, which is odd, but they did let Elsie look in on Ringo one night while he was sleeping because he was just so sick. They weren't really sure what was going to happen. Oh my God. One night in an entire year. I know. Yeah. I can't even imagine like my mom would not stand for that. That would be, yeah, that would be difficult. But yeah, so Ringo does come out. He came out when he was seven. At this point, you know, he had barely a year of schooling. He really hadn't had a chance to develop skills. Like, I don't know, reading and writing. He skipped school a lot after he was able to go back. And he also was like a really mean kid. He was uh, a playground bully. He used to shake kids down for their lunch money. Oh my um, God, bingo. Dude, yeah. I mean, he probably didn't have any social skills because he was in the you know hospital for so long. Yikes. He's such a little dude. He must have been fierce. Yeah. He was underweight. He was really like frail. So he also used to steal like little dumb things from like stores in the area um, one time he stole his aunt's pearl necklace and somebody caught him trying to like sell it on the street. Oh my God. <laughs> like a little entrepreneur. Dumb criminal stories. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, uh, it's kind of charming until it's not. Luckily, and this is a wonderful thing that happened to Ringo, when he was 11, his mother Elsie met a man named Harry Graves through mutual friends and they began dating and they got married but a year and a half later, Ringo was turning 13. Um, they got married in 1953. And Ringo and Harry, they got on like, they were thick as thieves. They'd go to the movies two to three times a week. Harry would buy Ringo comic books. 
Ringo would even take Harry's side if like Harry and Elsie were fighting. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, if Elsie was complaining to Harry that like Ringo is misbehaving, Harry would just like smile and do nothing. He (laughs) and Ringo really had like this strategic alliance. It was very funny. Yeah. And, you know, Ringo loved Harry. He used to say that, um, you know, he learned gentleness from Harry because Harry was a very, he was sort of not the opposite of Ringo's biological father, who was kind of rough and tumble. Harry was just a real sort of gentleman. He was very mild in his mannerisms. He treated his mother well. And Harry, as legend has it, he would buy Ringo his first set of drums later. He actually carted them up from London. They were used set and he paid 10 pounds for them. It's a very sweet story of him hauling them all the way to Liverpool. What a sweet guy. It is. Luckily for Elsie, too, when she got married to Harry, she stopped working um, and could kind of hang out with her son more. They obviously had a very close relationship as well. But, you know, when Ringo was 13, this is just after his mom and stepdad got married, he got sick again. And this time was even worse. He contracted pleurisy which is, I had to look this up. I'm not a doctor. Sorry to disappoint you. Um, But it's an inflammation of the lungs. And I thought it was a little bit like bronchitis, but I think you don't like cough up stuff for lack of a better term. (laughs) It's just sort of like your lungs feel like there were, there's just pain. You know, it's like the walls of your lungs, like rubbing against each other. Oh my God. Um, Yeah. And he got this because he, he contracted a cold And then it turned into that. And then it turned into TB. So he ended up with tuberculosis, which is obviously like kind of the worst thing you can get, especially at that point. Like it's either polio or TB. It's, you know, not good. And they were actually not telling people that it was tuberculosis. They were saying it was pleurisy for a while because they didn't want the stigma of having contracted TB. It was that bad. It could be a death sentence. You you really didn't know. So, you know, Ringo has now, he's only 13. He's gone through... So many dramatic, like, health scares that most people don't go through in their whole lives. It's insane. Yeah. And this time, he's in the hospital for almost two years, from 13 to, to 15. And that's insane. That's very a very formative time. I can't imagine what it was like for him to be stuck in the hospital during those two years. Yeah, um, really. Do you know if it was kind of the same as the first time where his parents weren't allowed to see him? So it seems like this time is a little bit, it was sort of a children's ward. So he had more interaction. He had more interaction with the children in the wing. They actually had a little band that he would play in, but he would only play if he could play the drums. How Ringo, how on brand for Ringo. He is, was born with some kind of confidence. It's amazing. (laughs) I know some sort of swagger. You know what? The whole, like, what's my name is kind of making sense now to me. It's, It's all coming together. That was always Ringo in his head. It's just come out now in his his (laughs) old age. Um, (laughs) uh, Well, yeah, I mean, it sounded like they had like some fun things going on too. So he learned to knit. Um, He got really creative in the hospital. Um, He did, by the way, along the way, learn to read and write. So he had that going for him. Um, He would do a lot of paper mache. Yeah. And he'd also like get in some fights, you know, typical beat up some kids and he said that one time in this hospital stay, his dad actually came to see him. And he told Hunter Davies in probably the very first Amazing Beetle book ever written that, quote unquote, he came once to see me in hospital with a little notebook and asked me what I wanted. 
which I could just see like his dad walking in there with a notebook and ready to like click click like what do you oh, want Richie the worst oh <laughs> uh, yeah oh it makes he me was sick. the worst you know what I would love to see Harry Graves beat the shit out of uh Ringo's dad Ringo's actual dad that is a good fanfic we gotta find Ooh. that one yes mm-hmm. Please write that fanfic. Uh, send it to us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. We'll read it we'll aloud. We'll read it. <laughs> <laughs> Just like Harry Graves kicking ass. Like, make it a comic book. It's great. You yeah, like a superhero? Million dollar idea. <laughs> oh, Lord. Uh, anyway. Oh, my God. He could be super friends with, like, Jim McCartney. <gasps> okay. Oh, my God. All right. This is this is just – we can't give away our ideas like this. We're not um, meeting our goal of not talking about, like, McCartney stuff. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Right. So anyway, so Ringo comes out of the hospital um, when he was 15. And this is actually kind of a shit time to come out, if we're being honest, because at that point, you're kind of expected to f- have finished school, like the basic blog of school that everybody got back in that time. Yeah. And he could have gone back to school, but at that point, he'd be like, you know, like a 26 year old in a fourth grade class. Like he just would not, he was way too behind and he didn't want to be that, that kid in class. The only other alternative was for him to go get a job. And that was also not going to happen because he was very frail. Still, he was very weak. He had to recuperate from his terrible health situation and he had no qualifications. He had no education. So he had a few jobs and they only lasted a hot second one was he was a messenger for the British Railways. He was also an onboard barman for a boat that went back and forth to North Wales. And then he worked in a machine shop as an apprentice fitter. And then that is right around the time he was about 17 when he was working um, as a fitter. And that's when um, the skiffle craze really started to blow up in Liverpool. And uh, he got into the music. Yeah, and the skiffle was really the perfect match for Liverpool kids like Ringo. It was based on American blues music. It used homemade instruments like a bass made from a tea cabinet and washboard percussion. Kids that didn't have any money, didn't have access to instruments, could start you know, banging on these things and kind of sounding like the records they were listening to. And then plus the main skiffle superstar was the Scottish-born Lonnie Donegan, who was a pretty ordinary looking and sounding guy. And guys like Ringo could kind of look at him and just see themselves in him as opposed to somebody like Elvis, who was this like larger than life superstar. So it was really like an attainable thing. So Ringo and a lot of boys like him loved skiffle. They started aspiring to be in a band. Ringo actually loved Skiffle and Blues um, and the vibe from it so much that he and his friend Bob Hardy even considered moving to Texas just to be closer to blues music. But they got so far as filling out the travel forms, which was very long, and they abandoned the idea. So it, that's not boring. That would be just so boring. And I'm sure it was so much paperwork. I know. So that dream thrown away. Instead, Richie, as he was called then, focused on his drum skills. He acquired his piecemeal kit. Um, and he played at all hours of the day and night. He was mostly self-taught too, which is pretty amazing considering he's now thought of as one of the most innovative drummers of all time. He actually did try and take music lessons for about three weeks, but he was so super bored at it that he quit lessons and he decided he would just go it on his own. And he kept just saying like, what's my name? And the instructor's like, I don't know, <laughs> like at this point. You're not famous yet. Anyway. He also was saying, I am the greatest. That was yeah, later. Yeah. 
so he did he did what every parent dreams of he went home and practiced the drums day and night <laughs> and the neighbors didn't like it uh, the neighbors actually started complaining but luckily for them one of the people who complained was the, either the sister or the mother of one of his good friends roy trafford roy played guitar and with another friend eddie miles uh, they formed the first band ringo was ever in that practiced out of the house which was first known as the Eddie Miles Band and later known as the Eddie Clayton Skiffle Group, which is really kind of a nice name. I like that. That is nice. I mean, I don't, Eddie Clayton, is that just, was that Eddie Miles' stage name? What they think is that Eddie Miles' father was a GI, but they didn't really know him, but his last name was supposed to be Clayton, so they took that on because it sounded cooler to them. Wow, there's Miles. a lot of, there's a lot to unpack there. A lot, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. But, you know, none of them really knew how to play any of these instruments. So it was a real learning experience for all of them. But amazingly, um, by the end of 1957, they added two new members and they actually got a couple of gigs. Ringo ended up getting himself a full drum kit, courtesy of his stepladder, as he called him, Harry. Yes, stepladder Harry. Yes. And he began to make a name for himself, both part of the Eddie Clayton Skiffle uh, group and then elsewhere in the circuit because he just wanted to drum all the time. So he began subbing in for any other band that needed somebody. So Ringo said that he thought he probably practiced with almost every group in Liverpool by the end of 1957. So the guy got around. He was, <laughs> you say what you want about Ringo, but he was dedicated. Damn. He was super in demand. Yeah, I mean, people really, really wanted to play with Ringo. It wasn't just the, Be or, you know, it wasn't just the Beatles later. It was, you know, he was very, very sought after. Yeah, I mean, he had a talent and he he learned everything he could on his own and it paid off for him. Eventually, the Eddie Clayton group broke up. Eddie got married. And so, bye-bye. Um, and Richie continued to work his day job. At this point, he was an, a, an engineer apprentice and um, and he would play the drums in the evening. But then in 1959, it was a pivotal year because the skiffle craze was kind of ebbing away and pure rock and roll was becoming the genre of choice. One local group that was moving in this direction was Al Caldwell's Texans. Uh, this band went through a number of names as they transitioned from skiffle to rock and roll. And they finally settled on Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. So wait, is that Rory Storm's real name? Yeah, Al oh. Alan Caldwell. Yeah, and it was Alan's Raging Texans, and then it was it was something else with the Hurricanes. Like He had three or four different iterations moving between Al Caldwell's Texans all the way to Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. Yeah, it was kind of interesting because at first they were like kind of bluesy and based in like this kind of almost American-sounding thing, and they were Texans, and they, <laughs> they sort of moved on to something that was a little bit less uh, evocative of, I guess, the skiffle, the skiffle sound. Uh, well, yeah. name upgrade for, for Rory. For sure. And I think Rory more fitted him than Al. He was oh, a very charismatic showman and he had a ton of ambition. By mid-1958, he had already been featured on Radio Luxembourg's Amateur Skiffle Club show, which was a pretty heavy feat considering how new Skiffle was. Everybody was just learning it from, from nothing. And how much Radio Luxembourg meant to the teenagers in Liverpool and all over Europe and the UK at the time too. That was you know, what they were piping into homes. And that was, well, at least I'm thinking about John growing up. That was kind of how he got to hear a lot of 
rock and roll and skiffle was via Radio Luxembourg. That's amazing that Rory got onto that. Yeah, you got to think that John may have been in his bedroom one night listening to Rory Storm on that show. I know. So as the band moved to a more rock sound, they started embracing showmanship um, a lot around their love of American Western. So they took on stage names. Al Caldwell became Rory Storm. Uh, Guitarist Johnny Byrne became Johnny Guitar after a 1954 Joan Crawford movie. Guitarist Ty O'Brien became Ty Harden after the star of the American TV series Bronco. Seeing a love that show. (laughs) And uh, bassist Wally Amon became the infinitely cooler sounding Lou Walters. Mm. So this love of U.S. Western culture was like a perfect fit for Richie, soon to be Ringo, and the Hurricanes knew it, and they knew who he was. And they knew he had the stage presence, and they knew he had a full drum kit, and that for a drummer, he could sing, too. So Rory asked him to audition, and in March 1959, he played his first gig as a Hurricane. Nice. And as we know, uh, in Liverpool band history and lore, having a full drum kit is pretty much all you need to join Liverpool band at this point. Work for Pete Best. Work for Pete Best. Mm. For <laughs> That's what I would get at. <laughs> And now comes the best part of the story. Because once he joined this band, he too had to get a name. But he was already known as Rings for his love of flashy jewelry, and he officially made the jump to Ringo. And like his counterparts in the Hurricanes, he liked the name even more than just because of the association with Rings, because it sounded like the U.S. Wild West outlaw Johnny Ringo, and also the John Wayne character, the Ringo Kid from the 1939 Western Stagecoach. And he loved that stuff. He wanted to move to Texas for no reason until he saw how big the form was. Yeah, they fucking love that. I mean, I talked to uh, Mike Pender of The Searchers years ago for an interview, and he would talk about you know, seeing the John Wayne movie, The Searchers, and that's how The Searchers got their name. And, you know, that was so influential to, you know, British bands coming up. That's incredible. If I was thinking about British kids in Liverpool, I would not think that that would be such a natural fit, but it really was. Yeah, definitely. And of course, he shortened his full last name, Starkey, down to Star, which is a natural fit for a man who wants to say his name a lot and is greatest. So it's perfect. That's his extra element of flash to compliment his rings and his personality. And we've got his name. He wants to say his name a lot. Yep. <laughs> he was the greatest. Also at this point, Ringo made another huge choice. He made the leap to full-time musician. He left his job as an apprentice engineer for a three-month gig with the Hurricanes at Butlin's Holiday Camp in Wales. And I am really disappointed that we do not have holiday camps anymore in the United States. I would love to go to a holiday camp. Is it like a summer camp? It's like um, like in the Catskills in the 50s. We're going to the Catskills. Exactly. It's like Dirty Dancing in England. Ugh, or Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Yeah, I would love to have that back in our lives. And I think it would work now. We all work from home. We all know how to work from home. Let's beat Corona and, and bring back the holiday camps. Let's do it. Hashtag bring back the camps. The holiday camps. <laughs> uh, maybe not that hashtag. Yeah, let's rethink this. Let's rethink <laughs> the this. Trump administration might have already trademarked that one. True. Hmm. All right, getting back to Ringo. <laughs> <laughs> 
Though Elsie and Harry were disappointed that Richie wouldn't become an engineer after all, they were surprisingly really supportive of the decision and they let oh. him go off, which is, is, is wonderful. It's so nice of them. They just gave him their blessing and they let him follow his dreams. Hmm. After that gig, they came back and Rory Storm and the Hurricanes became one of the hottest groups in Liverpool. Now, we should share a picture of Rory Storm, this guy. Uh, because he was a smoke show? insane tall blonde super charismatic he would wear super bright red or bright green or bright pink suits and the band behind him would be coordinated with it he would storm around the stage crazy costumes dance steps the most popular rock and roll songs of the day and he was just a powerhouse and rory noticed that ringo had the same kind of vibe and charisma and love of the drama as he did in a rare move for a drummer, he gave him the chance to share the spotlight with his own set, which is called Ringo Star Time. Mm, great. And I think we'll, we'll recognize Ringo Star Time in his, his later days with the Beatles. He would take the mic and he would sing along and shake his head like crazy and drum along to songs like Alley Oop. And of course, one of his favorites was Boys, much to the delight of girls. Yes, his cover of Boys is how you say iconic. It sure is. Scylla wasn't bad at boys either. No. Oh, I was going to say, we should also try to make it through this episode without talking about Scylla. That's not going to happen. Because I was just thinking, the guy who plays Rory Storm in Scylla, the mini series, is so good. And he oh, looks just like Rory. And he is he like gets his act down perfectly. Anyway. So, yeah. That's where my brain I should also mention, since I also want to mention Scylla, because I cannot, that <laughs> Ringo and Scylla were really close friends. And a lot of it was because uh, Scylla and her best friend, her best friend, I think her name was Pat, was kind of seeing Ringo for a while, uh, like a year or two before this. And she was she wanted to be a beautician. And Elsie was the only person that they knew that would let her experiment on her hair. So, oh and they, they, they show this in the Scylla movie, but it's I actually do. true that they would come over and they would bleach her, they would curl her, they would do all kinds of crazy things to her hair. And she was so warm and generous and she would just let them play oh my god uh i just it's melting my heart like ringo had the best parents i know i know so sweet (sighs) yeah and the woman who plays elsie is so dear and so it's just yeah it's so wonderful we we need to do a like a commentary on so oh we definitely everybody needs to talk to see it totally i literally just rewatched it like a week ago (laughs) (laughs) we can't not Anyway, this is a Ringo episode, right? Okay, back to Ringo, but I can easily transition to that. Because after Pat, after he stopped dating Pat, he started dating another girl named Geraldine McGovern. He called her Jerry. And eventually he was engaged to her. But Ringo really liked the girls' aspect of being a musician. And he was having fun with the attention that he got from girls in the clubs and at Butlins. And his musicianship was a real source of conflict for him and Jerry. Jerry wanted him to give it up, go back to work as an engineer's apprentice, like being the first engineer in their family, Ringo's family was really proud of this. They were very excited to have this. And so it was a big loss for them and for her too. But um, she gave him an ultimatum, her or the music. So we know what he chose and she gave him back the engagement ring. (sighs) Classic Jerry. Side note though, Ringo took back the engagement ring and started wearing it himself. (laughs) 
You can see it in Beatles photos from 1965. Oh, my God. I didn't know that. Ringo the jewelry whore. (laughs) Okay, well, we're definitely going to post pictures of that. We'll find it. Yeah, and he either had, like, really small fingers or she had, like, meaty, meaty hands. I was going to say, like, maybe he had it sized, like, for him. Oh, maybe. Maybe. (laughs) So, you know. Ring in hand, ring on finger. He <laughs> went back to the Hurricanes, and their popularity really started to grow. Like they, they were much more popular than the Beatles in the late, at the end of the fifties. They were voted the best band in Liverpool, so they were really at the top of their game. Um, they played the Cavern Club, they played Liverpool Stadium, and in October of 1960, they flew to Hamburg to play in a similar club to their acquaintances from home: John, Paul, George, Stu, and Pete. The very early Beatles. The iconic lineup of the Beatles. Yeah, the Fab Five. (laughs) (laughs) And you got to think about it. This time, the Hurricanes were thought of so much better than the Beatles. When Alan Williams was recruiting bands to play in Germany, the Hurricanes were his first choice, but they were already at Butlins. And the Beatles were at least fourth on the list behind the Hurricanes, Jerry and the Pacemakers, and Derry and the Seniors. Yeah, yeah, Derry. Yeah. Rory didn't get to go to Germany until his thing was over and Derry and the seniors needed to leave, so they came as a replacement to them. Ringo recalled meeting the Beatles once before at the Jacaranda Club in Liverpool, and he remembered them as a bunch of scrubs and kind of unprofessional amateurs compared to the slick outfit that was Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. <laughs> La-di-da, Ringo. Yeah. Oh, that's a song. Hmm. That may not have been the most accurate assessment, though, since the Beatles had a similar opinion of the Hurricanes. George wrote to a friend when he was in Hamburg and said the Hurricanes were, quote unquote, crummy, but the only good person who was any good in the group is the drummer. So much That's for such Rory a George thing to say. I know. I know. Sour. Even when he was, he wasn't even 18 yet. He was super sour. <laughs> petty, petty George. I love it. I love it. But they did get really close in Hamburg because they were together mocking Shao, pill-popping, doing all-night sets, going crazy. And Ringo got especially close with them because, I mean, one of the, one of the issues with, with Pete was that he, was not, he did not have the same kind of personality as them. He didn't want to go out with them. He didn't have the same kind of sense of humor. And Pete would kind of go off on his own after the gig. So Ringo would join them as a, as a fourth. Stu, at this point, was off with Astrid, and he... So it became the four of them socializing after after the gigs. Ringo would also sit in with the Beatles if Pete didn't show up, which apparently was pretty often. So go Pete. Wow. Yeah. Way to let down the group, Pete. Yeah, thanks, Pete. They're paying <laughs> back for that somehow. Somehow. We'll find out how. <laughs> so we're at the end of 1960. Both bands re- returned to Liverpool and Ringo became even closer with the Beatles as they just really merged with their personalities and their set list. Ringo said the Beatles were the only band in Liverpool that he would ever willingly go to watch on his time off. He just loved them. Hmm. Um, yeah. So in 1961, they parted ways. The Beatles went back to Hamburg while the Hurricanes played another summer at Butlins. But this was kind of the moment when their trajectories switched. So the Beatles were on the rise while the Hurricanes were kind of going in the opposite direction. The Beatles were growing exponentially and the Hurricanes were kind of playing the same songs and the same gigs and doing the same thing. And um, they started feeling a bit tired and Ringo felt the same, the same way. Although Ringo at this point was on the Beatles trajectory, he was rising up. 
he was considered the best drummer in Liverpool, even though he was no longer part of what people thought of as the best band. Ringo felt that more people should be saying his name, and he was dissatisfied <laughs> with his band and temporarily left the Hurricanes to return to Hamburg to join Tony Sheridan's band, who is, of course, famous in the Beatles legend for using them as his backup band for his single, My Bonnie. Ah, uh, yes. Now, I didn't know this about Tony Sheridan before this research, but he was, he was an asshole. Like, he was terribly <laughs> hard to work with. Straight and, up. <laughs> yeah, he had a reputation for being an absolutely the worst. Ringo accepted the offer because he just got such a good deal. He was going to get his own car, his own apartment, and $30 per week for a year-long commitment as their drummer, which is pretty Damn. amazing. That's a good yeah. offer. It is. But Tony Sheridan had, like, serious anger issues, and Ringo couldn't stand it. Like, he would start beating people up if they thought he was they were talking to his girlfriend, like he would come back to the stage all bloody and do his set all crazy. Like, Jesus. It was nuts. So it was kind of a deal breaker. So that year turned into two weeks. And in January of 1962, Ringo said, fuck y'all. And he returned back <laughs> and took his seat back as Rory's drummer. Damn, that's intense. I had no idea. Yeah, it's crazy. And like, good for Ringo, really, because if you think about it, like, that is a good deal. That is good money. Ringo thought well enough of himself that he was like, I am not going to be treated like this. I am not going to work under these conditions. And yeah. I'm going to do me. So bye-bye. Say my name. Good. <laughs> Say my name, bitch. I'm out. Drops mic. Drops drumstick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> bye-bye. Okay. I hope he took the car, though. I mean, that's a really good deal. I know. Like, it's, it's just one of those things, though, that the kismet of the Beatles story, it just all works it's out. unreal. Like, yeah, sometimes we, we've talked about this so many times, but it's like it's it had to happen just so. Right. So, like, in the meantime, the Beatles were having some drummer drama of their own. They were really struggling with Pete. Oh, my goodness. They've been managed by Brian for almost three months now. Brian, you say? I say Brian. <laughs> Are we going to talk about Brian? Would you like to talk about Brian? I, I would always, but we're talking about Ringo, right? This is Ringo. Right. Ringo. Managed by Brian. They had their first audition for a major record label, Decca, on January 1st of that year. Did not we have a whole that episode well. about that. That's a great episode. I really enjoyed mm-hmm. that one. It's a very popular one of our episodes, trivia. That's fantastic. If you haven't mm-hmm. heard it, go hear it. It's really an interesting story about their first audition. It was crazy. How they bombed the book out of it. Yeah. I kind of like it. Paul, Ramon, whatever. I'm not going to talk about Paul. Um, so, <laughs> so John, Paul, and George were becoming more and more dissatisfied with Pete Best, not only for his not up to par drumming skills, but for his personality. He still didn't meld with their sense of humor. He still didn't hang out with them. He didn't want to conform to the image that Brian wanted for the group, especially in regards to his hair. And there were a few issues between Pete and Paul. Paul wasn't impressed with his drumming. Paul tried to show him fills and stuff that he wanted him to do, and he couldn't do them. And he may or may not, but probably may have been kind of jealous that Pete's good looks got him a healthy female fan base. Wow, that 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 doesn't surprise me at all. Not at all. <laughs> but also, Pete failed to show to a few gigs, and that was, seemed to be something he did in Hamburg, and he's still doing it. But luckily for them, without fail, Ringo, who left his shitty job with Tony Sheridan, could fill in. So there was always just this sense of it clicking when they, when they got together, and it, it just didn't happen with Pete. But this occasional subbing was where it ended for this moment. But by June 1962, the Beatles' career was finally starting to explode. They were recording their first studio tracks with George Martin at EMI Parlophone, 
And George Martin did not feel that Pete had a strong enough beat. Pete ain't got the beat. And if they were, and that he could not be their drummer if they were going to be serious recording artists. Paul recounted this story and he said, George Martin said, can you change your drummer? And we said, well, we're quite happy with him. He works great in clubs. And George said, yes, but for recording, he's just got to be just a bit more accurate. I could totally hear George Martin saying that. Yes. <laughs> beautiful little accent. I know. The Beatles pondered this decision for about a month. And in the meantime, Ringo was at his third holiday camp summer gig with the Hurricanes. But he was being courted by two other Liverpool bands, King Size Taylor and the Dominoes, and Jerry and the Pacemakers. Both super popular. He was super sought after. And the weirdest thing though, Jerry wanted Ringo to be the bassist in the Pacemakers. What? And Ringo didn't actually play bass at all. <laughs> I didn't know that. I, I'm learning so much, you're blowing my mind. Like, isn't that weird? And he That's actually so considered weird. it though, because he liked the idea of being out on the front line. Wow, I didn't know that. Isn't that strange? Like, Random. I guess they, they had the idea that Ringo was so good at what he did that he could do that too. Wow. In August of 1962, August 15th, John and Paul personally went to Butlins to ask Ringo to join their band. Compared to the other offers, they had a lot going for them. They had a manager, Brian. Dot, dot, dot. They were recording at a top-notch recording studio. Their personalities were a perfect match. And unlike Jerry's offer, they wanted him to play the drums, not the bass. And the kicker was that they even offered five pounds more a week than King Size Taylor offered. And boom goes the dynamite. Perfect time, perfect scenario, still gets to play the drums. But he did have to leave the Hurricanes. He played out the last weekend with him, combed his hair into a mop top, and headed back to Liverpool to start this new chapter. And then they failed and nothing ever happened. JK. Bye. Yeah, bye. <laughs> um, actually, though, that night, John, Paul, and George returned to Liverpool to play a gig with Pete. Oh. Like what? nothing ever happened. Yeah. So they, they went on as they were, knowing that Ringo was going to replace them. Pete knew nothing. And then the next day, the band unceremoniously forced Brian to fire him in his office. That's a topic yeah. for another show. We definitely need to do that sometime. Yeah. And this was a big deal. I mean, they asked him to be the drummer on the 14th, which he accepted. They played the gig that night. On the 15th, he was called into Brian's office and fired. And by the 16th, the cover of Mersey Beat screamed in all caps, Beatles change drummer. This was a big fucking deal. That's fucked. I mean, that's kind of shitty, to be honest. Like if they, you know, had Ringo in the pocket on the 14th and then played a gig with Pete, like nothing was wrong. Like that's like fucked. All three of them later on admitted that they were dicks when it came to the way they dealt with Pete. I mean, I don't think they ever were magnanimous enough to apologize to him to his face. No, but probably not. They definitely felt some level of sheepishness for being absolute douche nozzles with the way that they dealt with that. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I feel like he kind of had a mercy when that was Brian, like letting him go. I'm sure like the three of them would have just been like, yeah, yeah, whatever you know, we don't care. <laughs> or, you know, it would have gotten worse. So at least Brian probably had some sort of, you know, lovely decorum about it. Well, and Brian did try to get him some other gigs to work with other bands. I think right. he even offered to have him be the front man of his own band that he would manage, but that didn't work out. But, you know, Brian was doing what he could. Yes. 
as, as he would. would. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, this screaming headline in Mersey Beat was not met with the excitement that the Beatles had hoped for. People were angry. People were super pissed. They were in the crowd shouting, Pete forever, Ringo never. And George got punched in the face by an angry fan on the first night uh, that Ringo played with them. This is still visible in the first publicity photos that they took a few days later. Yeah, he's got like a black eye, right? <laughs> yes. And this yeah. is why. Because he walked off stage and some angry fan punched him in the face because <laughs> Pete was no longer the drummer. Hmm. So Pete is still immortalized in some of these early pictures by uh, George's black eye. That did not deter the band. Ringo kept on drumming. The unbreakable magic that became the Fab Four was born. And the rest is history. And now we are celebrating Ringo's 80th. Amazing. I was thinking earlier today about like, you know, the fact that he started off as this really sickly child and he's 80 years old. Like that's no small feat, you know? Oh, yeah. Like, and he's had this obviously amazing life and all of these crazy things and whatever. And he survived the 70s, which is a fucking miracle, and the early 80s, uh, mm -hmm. which we definitely should talk about sometimes. Yeah, he doesn't really remember that, so I don't know if he, what he knows. Yeah, he, he, yeah, I mean, he's his famous quote, I was too stoned to remember, I think applies to a lot of his life. But um, I remember Ringo because it's my favorite period of your life. Um, <laughs> But it's it's phenomenal. I mean, the, he's turning 80. That's a real achievement. Yeah, and he's in great shape. If you look at him, he's really healthy. He's fit. He's very into exercise. He's a vegetarian. He went sober like 25 years ago. He stopped smoking. You know, see, he's he's really learned how to take care of his body. So Yeah. Yeah, there's a photo that was just posted, I think, of him and Zach or Jason. I can't remember which. Um, but it totally, like, this was taken a couple weeks ago. And it looks like he's the son and not oh an 80-year-old father. It's Ringo looks fucking great. Incredible. Rock on, Ringo. Yes, we love you, Ringo. Yeah. We do. And this drops on the day of his birthday, July 7th. Um, if you're listening to it on this day, don't miss Ringo's 80th birthday bash. That's going to happen tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern time on Ringo's YouTube channel or catch it later, same place. It will feature home performance and previously unseen concert footage from Ringo himself, from Paul McCartney, you know, Joe Walsh, Gary Clark Jr., Cheryl Crow, Sheila E., Ben Harper, and others. Ben Harper's so awesome. And yeah. proceeds for this benefit Black Lives Matter Global Network, the David Lynch Foundation, Music Cares, and WaterAid. So awesome yeah. for having a celebration that helps some causes that are sorely in need. Yes, yes. And I think he's doing, I'm not sure if uh, what, when it ends, but... He's doing a thing for the David Lynch Foundation where you can actually like chat with him on his birthday. It's sort of like an Omaze auction type deal, I think. Oh, really? So, oh, yeah. I know. I'm super anxious. Like whoever wins it, I hope they report back. Well, we'll share that if we find it. Yeah, yeah, cool. definitely. So yay. Happy birthday, Ringo. And uh, yay, our first Ringo episode ever. Many, many more. It didn't, it didn't hurt much, did it? No, it wasn't too painful. I gotta say, <laughs> it was... It was okay. It was actually kind of fun to research. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of Aww. you. Thanks. I'm proud of me too. I'm sure uh, some of our friends listening who love Ringo will also be very, very proud of me. So. Yes. Yes, definitely. Yes. Well, we end this episode as we always do with our favorite Beatles thing of the week. Mine's kind of cliche, but um, it's sort of a twist. Uh, I'm really excited about the Flaming Pie box set. Um, as you guys might know, 
the McCartney archives, the series that puts out the fancy schmancy box sets. Um, I think the last ones were what Red Rose Speedway and Wildlife. Oh, yeah. um, okay. They're now doing one of Flaming Pie, which is my favorite McCartney album. I love really? it. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it is my favorite. I love it so much. It was very formative to me. And yeah, it's but it's been really strange because <laughs> I've been watching a lot of like, um, you know, people on Instagram sort of discovering it, it for the first time and like posting like the icon of the Flaming Pie and, and, you know, they have the gifts now that you can add to your Insta stories of the Flaming Pie and Paul's handwriting and um, I think the handwriting for like Young Boy and that kind of thing. So it's like, it's been really surreal watching people discover it <laughs> when it's yeah. like, and I'm feeling a little bit like that's mine, but I'm also very happy to see it, you know, get the reception it's getting. And, and I think that period of Paul's life sort of gets overlooked because it's right before Linda died. And, um, you know, and this is the first, the last sort of contribution she had to his music, mm-hmm. uh, which makes it a really bittersweet album, but it's yeah. so wonderful. I can't wait. Um, I'm still trying to justify spending like $600 for it, but, um, no, you're not just buy it. You know, you, you couldn't live without it. You need it. I know. I know. Get, get behind me, Satan. Who are you? <laughs> anyway? So that's, that's what I've been kind of like fixated on lately. Beetle wise. What about you? Um, I've been watching a lot of television because quarantine. Um, ah, yes. Yeah, and I found something really fun. There's this show on Netflix called Somebody Feed Phil, and it's a food show where this guy, Phil, and I can't remember his last name, but he is the writer and creator of that show, Everybody Loves Raymond, mm. um, which I've only seen a couple of times, so I'm not really sure if that's good or bad. But I love um, it. So He's this really like happy fun enthusiastic person who goes to different countries and just like meets with people who make different types of food in the in the city so he's gone all over the world and he's just like really excited about it and the montreal episode was one that i was really excited about because i lived in montreal for a number of years but it had a very special beetle surprise to me because he ended up being in the room where john and yoko had their bed in the Queen Elizabeth Hotel in Montreal. So he did some food thing in there. But more than that, which he didn't doesn't usually do, he showed around what the room looks like. So he kind of like showed like what it looked like when John was there. And then they did the camera pan around like all the different things. And you can see like if you stayed there, like all the different kind of cool Beatles stuff that's in the room. And I'd never seen it before other than just the videos of the bed where they were and the whole room is really cool um i looked it up and for about six thousand dollars you can stay there for two nights and it's a two-night minimum so it's about six thousand dollars so um everybody uh, somebody yeah somebody feed phil's um tour of it is probably the closest i'm gonna get but i was really excited to be doing my usual binging and being able to see a bit of Beatles history that i'd never actually seen before so beetle surprises it's fun that's so cool that like the hotel thought enough of that event and like, you know, the history of it to preserve the room and yeah. create something like that around it. Yeah. And it looks just like it did in the film. So it's really exciting. Like the bed is, the, it's probably the same bed and they've really preserved it. Really That's so well. cool. Oh my gosh. Very nice. Well, uh, on that note, thank you for listening as always to Because the Beatles and 
You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening right now, basically. And please, please leave us a rating slash review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting photos and more from this episode and beyond. Remember, you can always email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com, too. See you next time. Bye. Bye.